What a Day is brought to you by Ulta Beauty. This AAPI Heritage Month, Ulta Beauty is celebrating the joy of belonging, belonging to a community composed of intricate connections, belonging to our past and our future, to the heritage and birthright that is beauty. Ulta Beauty shines a light on the AAPI community, passing the mic to brand founders and creators to tell their stories centered on heritage, joy, and beauty. They carry AAPI-owned and founded brands like Live Tinted, Peach and Lily, Glamnetic, Tree Hut, and more. Shop AAPI-owned and founded brands at Ulta Beauty Stores and Ulta.com. It's Friday, June 17th. I'm Gideon Resnick. And I'm Travel Anderson. And this is What A Day. We were thanking Beyonce for waiting to announce a new album until she knew we really needed it. Yes. Any other time in the last like two or three years could have been okay as well. Probably needed it at that point too. <laughs> but I'll take it here. This is good. We will take it when we can get it. Okay. That's it. That's all we have to say. <laughs> On today's show, a baby formula plant in Michigan shuts down again, but this time because of severe storms and flooding. Plus, we hear how you are celebrating this Juneteenth weekend. But first, we're basically at the halfway point in the House hearings on January 6th. Yesterday was the third out of seven expected hearings this month by the January 6th committee. They continued to reveal findings from their investigation, so we want to recap what we know now. Yeah, and so much of what they talked about yesterday focused on former President Trump's efforts to pressure his then-Vice President Mike Pence to not certify election results showing that he had lost. And committee member Representative Pete Aguilar went as far as to say this. Donald Trump knew he lost the 2020 election, but he could not bring himself to participate in the peaceful transfer of power. So he latched on to a scheme that once again he knew was illegal. And when the vice president refused to go along with it, he unleashed a violent mob against him. Yeah, and another primary focus of the hearing on Thursday was the conservative lawyer John Eastman, who was advising Trump throughout this. The committee argued that Eastman knew that this strategy was illegal and that, in fact, he had sought a presidential pardon at some point. Retired conservative federal judge J. Michael Luddig, who had told Pence apparently not to listen to Trump, testified before the committee, too. He spoke rather deliberately and slowly during the hearing and said in part that if Pence had followed through, it would have, quote, plunged America into what I believe would have been tantamount to a revolution within a constitutional crisis. Yes, and then one final takeaway from yesterday, Representative Benny Thompson, the chairman of the committee, said that the panel is going to invite Virginia Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, to testify. That comes after revelations that she had apparently been emailing with Eastman about efforts to overturn the election. They always leave a paper trail. <laughs> For more on the hearing and what we found out, we have with us Pod Save America's Dan Pfeiffer again. He is the author of the new book, Battling the Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA Media Are Destroying America. Dan, welcome back to What a Day. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you with us. All right, let's jump into it. What stood out to you most in Thursday's hearing? If we can get beyond some of the optical things that got Twitter obsessed, like Michael Luddig's very deliberate speaking style. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, what was very notable here, and you had to really dig through some pretty esoteric conversations about specific provisions of the 12th Amendment, the Electoral Counts Act but was the fact that Donald Trump and John Eastman both knew that what they were proposing was illegal and unconstitutional and dishonest, and they were doing it anyway. 
And the result of that unconstitutional, dishonest, allegedly criminal activity was the violence on January 6th. It was a specific effort to tie the bad faith pressure campaign on Mike Pence with the resultant assault on the Capitol. So to that point, a lot of the hearing also focused on Trump's pressuring a former Vice President Pence to not certify the election results. Pence, of course, refused. Here is Representative Pete Aguilar rereading a passage from the book Peril, written by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa about Trump's last days in office. Vice President is reported to have said, no, look, I've read this, and I don't see a way to do it. We've exhausted every option. I've done everything I could, and then some, to find a way around this. It's simply not possible. To which the President says, no, no, no. You don't understand, Mike. You can do this. I don't want to be your friend anymore if you don't do this. Yeah, so what other new information emerged? Well, a couple of things. A lot of what was in the hearing has been sort of referenced obliquely in various reports in some of these books. There are a couple of things that are notable in here that are sort of kind of maybe half known. One from the hearing was that Trump and Pence had met privately. Pence had communicated that he did not believe he had this authority to overturn the election. And then Trump put out a statement afterwards, completely lying about what Pence had told him. Jason Miller, Trump's communications director, testified that essentially everyone knew that was a lie when they did it. And I would say Miller seemed confused by the idea that anyone was questioning that you would just put out a dishonest statement from the president. That was very notable. Also notable was that John Eastman continued to push for the insurrection after January 6th and went from arguing that the Electoral Counts Act was unconstitutional and therefore the vice president did not need to adhere to it, to then using minor violations of the Electoral Counts Act on the day of certification as an argument to send it back to the states again. So there was this incredible persistent dishonesty and bad faith that ran through the whole thing. So you mentioned John Eastman. He's the conservative lawyer who was advising Trump on this, I guess we can call it a strategy. What more did we find out in particular about like how integral his role was to all of this? And what do you think is the significance of this confirmed information that we now have? Eastman was the central driver of this part of the insurrection. He was pushing this. He was the one primarily advising Trump more than any of Trump's other attorneys. Eastman is a formerly well-respected, card-carrying member of the conservative legal establishment brought, was different than the bunch of cranks who were around Trump generally in this period, right? Rudy Giuliani, the MyPillow guy. John Eastman was a Federalist Society member, right-wing legal person in good standing with the establishment. And so he really moved this process forward. What is very clear now is that He did it knowing what he was pushing for was illegal, unconstitutional. He took the Fifth Amendment a hundred times in his (laughs) appearance before the committee. We now know he asked for a pardon after January 6th, which means that he's well aware that what he did is criminal activity for which he could be prosecuted. There is like a broader thing about John Eastman because there's this tendency, I think, to take the people who believe the big lie to be sort of you know, MAGA goofballs and Mm -hmm. grifters and these, you know, just people who don't know any better, like the MyPillow guy, right? But John Eastman is a real person who knew better and was doing it anyway. And that is the attitude that's fueling the 2024 version of what they tried to do in 2020, is real people with real standing who know what they are doing is illegal. They have justified 
that to themselves based on an apocalyptic view of change in America. And that's one of the takeaways for me from this hearing is there are a lot more John Eastmans out there and they're going to get a lot more help next time around. Mm. Speaking of Eastman, the night before yesterday's hearing began, emails attained by the January 6th committee revealed specific correspondence between him and Jenny Thomas. She is the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. That revelation led to the committee saying that they want to interview her. Her name has been brought up a few different times as it relates to (laughs) the election and the insurrection and all of that. How big of a deal is this? Well, it appears now that the committee said they're going to try to talk to her. I was just speaking with Congresswoman Elaine Luria, who said that she had heard during the hearing that Ginny Thomas said she would speak to the committee. Uh, So that may be happening Mm. in uh, short order. I mean, Ginny Thomas is she is the Kevin Bacon of the insurrection. Like every and every every <laughs> every wing of this is connected to her, right? And so, and it, like she is, she was lobbying legislators to do fake electors. She's speaking to Mark Meadows. I mean, she's now talking to Jenny Smith. So she's at the center of all of this. And there is this gigantic question about. Not what conversations that Ginny Thomas had with John Eastman is what conversations that Ginny Thomas have with Clarence Thomas about these right. things because mm. there's two problems here. One, there's a gigantic conflict of interest for Justice Thomas, who is likely going to probably have to rule on some cases involving either criminal liability for people involved in January 6th, future insurrections. By any normal standard, he would have to recuse himself from those. The Supreme Court operates, ironically enough, above the law, and there are no actual standards by which conflict of interest rules apply. And then there is the further question of sort of what does she know and what light can she shed on some of these conversations? Because she was spoke to so many people on a sort of the connective tissue of what was happening here. Gotcha. And I, I want to go back to something you were talking about a moment before, which is sort of this idea that a lot of Thursday's hearings seem to be spent on establishing that various parties knew what they were doing was wrong in real time, like as they were doing it. So what could that conceivably mean for the outcomes here? And and why is that important for this committee to elicit from these hearings? There are two dimensions I think we have to look at this in. One is the legal and one is the political. Mm. And so on the legal side, ultimately, this committee has no power to hold Trump legally accountable. Our belief and understanding and hope is that the Justice Department is involved in an equally aggressive, independent investigation into these very same matters. But nonetheless, the committee has sort of charged itself that we are going to make the case that in a legal fashion for criminal activity from those involved, including the former president, two parts of the fact pattern they think are important is one, Trump knew that he lost the election and pushed the lies anyway. Mm -hmm. That is an attempt to defraud. And the second is that he knew what he was doing when it came to trying to pressure Mike Pence into committing a crime. And he knew that he was doing that at the time. They're trying to establish knowledge from Trump. I think it's pretty clear that they have done that beyond any doubt. Mm-hmm. Then the second element is political. The committee is trying to talk about what happened and what is happening in America. And they're doing it in prime time. You do something in prime time, you're trying to persuade people. And I think what they're trying to persuade people of is that there was no sincerity here. There was no integrity here. This was a group of criminals knowingly engaging in a criminal conspiracy to overturn an election. And that is an important thing for people to understand 
not just about the people involved in that conspiracy then, but all of the Republicans who are abiding by that conspiracy now. Mm -hmm. Well, Dan, thank you so much again for your time and for um, walking everybody through this. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We will, of course, continue to cover the hearings. The next one is scheduled for this coming Tuesday, so more on all of this very soon. But that is the latest for now. Let's get to some headlines. Headlines. During their first wartime visit to Kyiv, the leaders of the three largest economies in the European Union backed Ukraine's efforts to join the EU. The leaders that were present were French President Emmanuel Macron, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi, who traveled together by train. Now, this pledge is coming amid some questions about the rest of Europe's commitment to Ukraine, with criticism reportedly mounting that Macron specifically had been pushing for a ceasefire. The leader sought to dispel those notions yesterday, though. The European Commission is reportedly going to make an official recommendation today regarding Ukraine's application. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky praised what the other leaders had to say, but told the press as well, quote, We expect new supplies, especially heavy weapons, modern rocket artillery, and missile defense systems. The support from these countries and the commission will certainly help Ukraine's bid. But in order to become a member, the country needs the support of all 27 member states. The Abbott Baby Formula plant in Sturgis, Michigan, that's been the center of the nationwide baby formula shortage, shut down again yesterday. But this time, it wasn't for contamination-related reasons. According to a statement from the company, severe storms in the area caused flooding in parts of the facility earlier this week, forcing it to stop production. The Abbott plant had just resumed operations on June 4th after being shut down for months amid widespread bacterial contamination in products. That scandal prompted Abbott to take its formula off the shelves, putting a huge strain on parents across the country who were desperate to feed their children. Abbott Nutrition said on Wednesday that it would need a few weeks to assess the damage and re-sanitize the Michigan plant before resuming production. But FDA Commissioner Robert Califf said that the shutdown likely won't worsen the current formula shortage because of increased imports and production by other manufacturers. It's a good thing there will never be more extreme weather. Of course not. But this was just an isolated incident. <laughs> no other buildings in our country will flood. Um, okay, I don't mean to joke. This is all very serious, and it makes me quite angry. Um, Pakistan's government considered all the cuts that could be made to rescue its economy and landed on the little things that make life worth living. The country's planning minister asked citizens this week to lower their consumption of tea, a drink that Pakistani people are thought to consume three times a day on average. The reason for singling out tea is that it is imported, and it costs the country about $600 million annually from its currency reserves. The global economic crisis that we are all witnessing is severe in Pakistan, with inflation elevated, food prices soaring, frequent power outages, and the rupee at record lows. The country has already banned imports of all non-essential luxury goods, but by early indications, people are uh, not happy about being asked to cut back by one or two cups a day on their delicious boiled leaves. One journalist told NBC News, quote, the problem is Pakistani elites will impose heavy taxes on the masses and snatch our cup of tea and they will never leave their lavish life. Teagate is notably coming just two months into the regime of Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif, who took over after the last PM was ousted in a no-confidence vote. I would very much not like to see any coffee or tea be revoked at any point. It would also make me mad as well. I just want to express that solidarity. 
The streaming world's most reliable source of bad decisions, Netflix, may have seen some of their actions catch up to them. On Wednesday, they settled a racial and sexual discrimination lawsuit with the legendary comedian Monique, who first rose to stardom on The Queens of Comedy in 2001. Monique's allegations are pretty explosive. She says Netflix offered her a half a million dollars for a special in 2018, and when she pushed back and accused the company of underpaying black women while offering eight-figure deals to comics like Chris Rock and Amy Schumer, Netflix pulled the offer entirely. Monique's legal team alleged that Netflix Netflix's decision to walk away was retaliation for her call-out, and that, had she demanded a higher offer without alleging discrimination, they might have stayed at the negotiating table and figured something out, as is standard practice in the industry. Netflix tried to get Monique's case thrown out in 2019, but was unsuccessful. It's not known how much the company settled for, though hopefully it takes just enough out of the budget to put the next Ricky Gervais or Dave Chappelle special out of reach financially. According to Monique's lawyer, the suit was quote, amicably resolved. And I would just like to say as someone who counts Monique as their favorite actress, y'all need to stop playing in her face, please. And thank you. Yes. Netflix, I know that you are listening. You listen every day. (laughs) Pay attention to what Travel is saying. Yes. Seriously. (laughs) And those are the headlines. We'll be back after some ads to hear how some of you, our listeners, are planning on celebrating Juneteenth this weekend. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring. Full throttle is half the fun. Where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. It's Friday, Wad Squad, and we're going to wrap up the week by celebrating Juneteenth. So the holiday is coming up this Sunday, and of course, it is the day that we commemorate the emancipation of enslaved Black people in America. Yes, a quick history lesson here. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation to abolish slavery. But it wasn't until two years later that one of the last groups of enslaved folks in Galveston, Texas, were informed. That was on June 19th, 1865, and the following year, the first Juneteenth celebrations took place in Texas. And as of 2021, June 19th is now a federal holiday. So we ask you, the Wad Squad, to tell us how you plan to celebrate Juneteenth. Our first response we have is from Annie. Hi, Wad. This Juneteenth, I will be outside Sing Sing Prison distributing free fruits and vegetables to families with loved ones on the inside. They can take them inside to their loved ones. They can bring them home, whatever they like. Um, And this is through a really great grassroots group called Sing Sing Family Collective, which was actually co-founded by Joseph Wilson, who's currently incarcerated, and his wonderful wife, Renee. And it's just really great to have an opportunity to be in solidarity with people who are impacted by our carceral system. And I'm excited to spend my Juneteenth weekend this way. Nobody's free until everybody's free. Thanks. Wow. 
Good for you, Annie. That was great. Yes, we will be sure to link to Sing Sing Family in our show notes so you can check out and support their work. We also heard from this listener, Jeffrey. Hey, what a day. Yeah, to answer the question, um, this weekend I'm going to take the time to finish reading Tracy Michelle Lewis Jiggett's latest book, Black Joy, Stories of Resistance, Resilience, and Restoration. It's a collection of essays of her thoughts regarding you know, the Black experience. It's um, really awesome and just gives me spirit during these hard times to be truthful. That's great. Wow, our listeners are very thoughtful people. It makes me extremely happy. These are wonderful responses. I'm just thrilled for them. Well, hold off just right there because my favorite thing that Jeffrey said is this. <laughs> now... If I feel compelled, I might just, uh, you know, go on Twitter and throw shade at companies that tweet Juneteenth celebrations that have like 1% of black employees. I don't know. I might do that. But anyway, in the words of Flo Millie, I'm going to keep it pretty black and cute. Incredible. Jeffrey, you are invited <laughs> on WAD whenever you so please. Incredible stuff. We'll be taking a long weekend ourselves to celebrate Juneteenth. We'll be back with a new episode for you on Wednesday, June 22nd. One more thing before we go, celebrate Pride with us by checking out our brand new line of merch now at the Crooked Store. As always, a portion of every order from our Pride collection is going to the Crooked Pride or Else Fund, which supports three incredible organizations that provide community building, gender affirming, and life-saving resources to the queer and transgender community. Shop all Crooked merch at crooked.com slash store. That is all for today. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, pay Monique, and tell your friends to listen. Period. And if you are into reading and not just tea leaves like me, What A Day is also a nightly newsletter. Check it out and subscribe at crooked.com slash subscribe. I'm Travel Anderson. I'm Gideon Resnick. And, and stay, stay back, back, Ricky Gervais, Gervais and, and Dave, Dave Chappelle. Chappelle. Yeah. We don't want it no more. <laughs> What a Day is a production of Crooked Media. It's recorded and mixed by Bill Lance. Jazzy Marine and Raven Yamamoto are our associate producers. Our head writer is John Milstein, and our executive producers are Leo Duran and me, Gideon Resnick. Our theme music is by Colin Gilliard and Kashaka. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring. Full throttle is half the fun. Where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.